seems like death crushes all of us, but in Jesus, death is crushed to death. I love that line, life is ours to live in Christ. Uh, this week, many of you saw an uh, email late in the week, but a longtime member of Ashley River Baptist Church, John Ledford, uh, passed away. For some time, John has been one of our semi-active members and able to attend frequently, but uh, thankful for him, thankful to have a chance to get to know him briefly. I know that many of you knew him longer and much more than I did, but enjoyed a, a chance to visit with him and pray with him a few weeks ago and was surprised to learn that he had, he had passed this week. So be in prayer for his family. Also, the funeral and visitation are here uh, tomorrow, the visitation at 10.30 a.m., and then the funeral to follow at 11.30 uh, So I know that can be a difficult time for some of you to make, but if you can be here, would love to be here and be an encouragement uh, to the family. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we do thank you that in Christ we have life in place of death. And we ask that you would help us be imitators of him, to walk in love as he himself loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, with humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, we ask this morning for uh, John Ledford's family, for uh, Kathy and David and for the rest of his family, God, that you would encourage them that their hope would be in Christ. We continue to pray for our brothers Hal and Paul, that you would uh, heal them, give them strength. For Sally and Troy Ebbett, God, I pray that their hope would be in you and that you would uh, give them uh, strength and encouragement in a difficult time. We thank you for St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant. God, I pray for them that the gospel would be clear and treasured in their midst, that they would connect people to the presence and power of Jesus Christ. I pray for their pastor, Steve Wood, that you would encourage him, that he would not grow weary in well-doing. We think of our communities and our nation this Tuesday on Election Day. God, be merciful to us. May we find our confidence in the gospel and the hope it offers, particularly for the next life and not for this one. We pray this morning for Muslims in Nairobi, Kenya, particularly Muslim women there, God, who are oppressed and persecuted. I pray that they will hear the gospel and believe. I pray that their children will believe in the gospel. We thank you for Mary Blocker, God. I ask that you would encourage her in her walk with Christ, that her relationship with you would be sweet, that you would give her confidence in your word. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would protect us from temptation, deliver us from evil. Help us radically fight the presence and power of sin in our lives. May we see the power of the gospel of Jesus as our only hope in our fight against sin. And Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people that are quickly reconciled to each other and that would be, we would be reconciled through the Son of your blood, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 21 through 30 this morning as we look at God's design for our fight against anger and lust. As we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see this central idea that we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I can't take credit for the original phrasing of this. It comes from a guy, a pastor, a few centuries ago by the name of John Owen, and I kind of borrowed it from him this morning because I thought it fit well this morning. I'll begin reading in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I was talking with a friend this week, and I said, I get the delight of preaching on murder and adultery this Sunday. And they said, well, that shouldn't take long. Don't do it. So if you want to summarize, there you go. We're going to take a little bit longer than that this morning. Well, in this passage this morning, Jesus is going to do two things. One, he's going to lay out for us the heart of the law, God's intent in giving the law. And secondly, he's going to demonstrate his authority over the law. He's the one who has given the law, and therefore he has authority over it. And what's going to happen here is a pattern that we'll see over and over in the book of Matthew. So you have the law itself, God's words, and that's really the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there you have God's law laid out. And so by the time we get to the first century, what has happened is you have the law of God itself, and then alongside it, you have what is often called tradition. This tradition in particular is the tradition of the elders and rabbis. Rabbis are simply Jewish teachers. And so there's this tradition of teaching laid out. And by this time, you have the law itself, and then you have the tradition around the law. In other words, you have the word of God, and then you have what people say about the word of God. And what happens is, over time, the distinction can be lost. You have the word itself, and then what people say about it. And so by the time we get to the first century... Really, the two things are often equated. You have God's word, and then you have what people say about it, what the rabbis say. And what Jesus comes is he interprets the law in a new way, or in a way that is in some ways distinctly different from the tradition itself, but is always in keeping with the word itself. Now, what happens when, when, we, when we see this is something that, honestly, it happens in our world today, too. We have the word, and then we have our interpretation of the word. And that's good because God gives us a spirit. He asks us to understand, to apply the word to our lives. But if we're not careful, the same thing can happen. We can take the word and then we can take our interpretation or our traditions as they concern the word and we can over time equate the two. And what Jesus does is he draws a little bit of a distinction here between the traditions and the actual word itself. Well, in verses 21 to 48, we're just really looking at the first half of this. But in these verses... Jesus six times uses this pattern. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what he's doing is he's taking their traditions, sometimes the law itself, and then he's interpreting it for them. And in doing this, he's establishing the idea that he has the authority as the one who wrote the law to interpret the law to help people understand it. 
And so as we walk through this passage together, we're going to look at a few things, the first of which is pretty basic, but is what the law says. Now, in these six examples that Jesus uses, today we're looking at just two of them. These two are actual laws. They're actually part of the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, and the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Those are clear commands. A couple of the ones that we'll get into next week actually are just traditions. But here we're looking at the law itself. Well, one reason that as Jesus does this, he says, you have heard rather than you have read, it was said, is because the way the word of God came primarily to these people is through hearing. In other words, it's read to them. The reading of the word of God is important in our worship today. Part of that is because in this time and in most of history, honestly, the way that people encountered the word was through the reading of the word because they didn't have their own copies of the word, so they likely haven't read for themselves. So there's the original commandment in Exodus 20, you shall not murder. That's the commandment. It's right there. Well, then in verse 21, they also add a little bit of interpretation, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Makes sense. Pretty straightforward. I don't think we have probably a lot of argument or confusion about that. The second commandment we come to is, you shall not commit adultery in verse 27. Again, Jesus quotes from the 10th commandments, Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sex outside of marriage. Well, this week we were reading through these passages together as a family, and uh, I'm you know, we've got two, five, and eight. So you can imagine, you know, what the conversation is like. And so I asked them, you know, what do you think adultery is? And they kind of thought, and they said, something that adults do? And I said, well, technically that's mostly true. But basically adultery is when people that aren't married act like they're married and they shouldn't. And so we've got this, this picture of adultery and we kind of understand that. But in addition to this, Jesus is also confronting a particular aspect of first century culture. So you have the law which says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, in addition to the law, they've created this tradition, and this tradition says that not only should you not commit adultery, but men really can't commit adultery. Only women can commit adultery. In other words, it's like this. If you're a married man, you can have any woman that you want as long as she's not married. But women have to be faithful within the bounds of marriage. Now, the reason that they said you couldn't take a married woman was not so much that they were worried about that woman. It's because then you were violating the rights of another man. And so they're pretty, it's a pretty male-dominant culture. And so not only is Jesus teaching about sexual or moral purity here, he's also confronting their ideas about male and female roles. Women don't have the same privileges as men. So that's what the law says. Pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Well, this brings us to where Jesus is headed, which is what God intends in giving the law. Now, if you have uh, kids, have observed kids in a home, in a classroom, in a neighborhood, on a playground, anywhere you know that this is true. You can create a rule, and kids will sort of find a way to squirrel around the rule. So for instance, in your home, no running, all right? No running. Well, then what are they doing? They're skipping, right? Or they're jumping, or they're hopping. And so then you have to create a list of rules, all right? No running, and no skipping, and no jumping, and no hopping, and no crab walk, and no whatever. No wheelbarrow races in here. So you kind of create, you, you have the, the center of the rule, which is we don't want any craziness going on. Well, then you kind of create this list of rules that support the basic rule. Well, that's what's happened over time here. And so Jesus now takes the, uh, takes the, 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 the law, the rule itself, don't commit adultery, don't murder, and he demonstrates both that God intends not just that our outward actions conform to God's intentions, but also that God cares about our heart. And then he also, again, reinforces his authority as the lawgiver. 
So what Jesus does not do is take the law and sort of set it aside and say it doesn't matter anymore. Rather, he takes it and applies it in a different way. He sort of raises the bar. You've heard, don't commit adultery. I say to you, God cares about what you do in your heart. And so that's really what he does here. And the first area that he addresses is the idea of peace. God wants us to have peace, not relational conflict. Not just murder, but peace in all our relationships. The first area that Jesus confronts is anger in verse 22. Everyone who is angry with his brother or everyone who insults his brother. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses a couple of synonyms that essentially mean fool. One is uh, the idea that someone is completely empty-headed, and the other is the idea that they are a total moron. Basically, the idea is you get so angry at someone, you say, you idiot. I mean, that's basically what he's getting down here. Now, he's not so much saying, he's not kind of uh, addressing a, a list of words, putting words on a do-not-say list. In fact, uh, one of our kids was worried, you know, well, if I've ever called anyone an idiot or a fool, you know, do I go to hell? That's not exactly his point here. Now, maybe you, no, no, certainly you shouldn't do that, but beyond that, that's not really the point he's making. What he's getting at is the heart of anger that produces the kind of attitude that would express itself in these kinds of words. In other words, we shouldn't tear down someone who is made in the image of God. Well, then Jesus tells us two stories to help us understand this. He tells us a story first about someone coming to worship in the temple, and secondly, he tells us a story about a lawsuit. And these stories really help us understand the first in verses 23 and 24, the act of worship, and then verses 25 and 26, the lawsuit. In the first story, uh, the person is coming to offer a gift, a sacrifice at the altar. And when he arrives at the altar, he, gar- he, he gives the gift, and it's then, Jesus says, that he remembers. He remembers his situation. And this situation is that he has a brother who has an offense against him. There's something between them relationally. Now, Jesus isn't using brother here as in a physical brother or as in a brother or sister in Christ. He's talking in the sense of general humanity, in the sense of of, uh, of humanity itself. In other words, he remembers his bro. He's talking bro, brother here, as in, hey, we're humans, we're brothers. And so there's this break in the relationship. And when this happens, when this man gets there and remembers this, verse 24 is emphatic. He remembers, and then Jesus says, leave your gift and go. In other words, in this moment, the most important thing isn't the outward act of worship. Rather, it's the fact that there's this awareness that there is a broken relationship. There's an angry heart that resulted in this broken relationship. And Jesus says the most important thing in this moment isn't that you're there offering this act of worship. Rather, first, go to your brother, be reconciled, then come back and offer this offering in worship. Offer your gift. And it's this phrase, first be reconciled, then go and offer your gift, that brings us to one of the most difficult parts of reconciliation. Reconciliation is essentially mending a relationship that's broken. It's a relationship that once was one or should be one, and it's torn in two through some sense of conflict. Well, the hard part about this is that no matter what circumstances have led to the broken relationship, the responsibility for repairing the relationship is always yours. It's always mine. In other words, the responsibility always lies with us. So there are a couple of times where Jesus teaches about how to resolve relationships like this. One of them is in Matthew chapter 18. Now, we 
Now, if, if, if you know it all, we often think of this passage as teaching about church discipline, and it does teach about a process to pursue for church discipline. But there's something more basic going on there, and that is that there's sin that has caused a break in a relationship. And Jesus says, if you see someone sinning, go to him and encourage him to make it right. So in this case, whose responsibility lie? Who does it lie with? It lies with me. I should go to that person when I see that. Here in Matthew 5, it's a similar situation, but it's just kind of the flip side, which is if you're going and you're worshiping and you know that this person has a problem with you, again, the responsibility lies with you. So whether you see someone sinning in a way that's breaking relationship or whether you know you've sinned in a way that's broken a relationship, the point is the responsibility always lies with us. But there's something else that is hard here. Jesus says, first, go and be reconciled. He doesn't say go and reconcile yourself. He says go and be reconciled. Now, this is important because it it demonstrates something that is hard for us. If you are a proud, angry person and you exist in a broken relationship, the last thing you'd like to do is admit to this person who is hard to love that you need something from them. But reconciliation is not something you can demand. It is only something that can be given. You can ask for it. You can seek it. But someone must give it. Reconciliation isn't something we can do. It's something that we receive. And it's hard when we're the person, whether we're the person who's created the issue or whether we're on the receiving end, it is hard to go and admit we need from something from the other person, namely forgiveness and reconciliation. So when you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, would you forgive me? That's a difficult moment because in that moment you are admitting you need something, namely that person's favor, their grace, their forgiveness, their reconciliation. So this is the first thing. We have to be committed to peace, not conflict. Secondly, though, Jesus says we must be committed to faithful, holistic purity in verses 28 to 30. Jesus' thoughts about sexual sin. Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, what's obvious here is how Jesus has raised the bar from literal acts of adultery to a lustful heart. But what's not quite as obvious is how he's taking their idea of male and female roles and kind of turning it on its head. We referenced earlier the idea, the common concept that that women in a marriage could commit adultery, but men basically could not. But Jesus now applies this commandment directly to men. He says, this person has committed this sin, this adultery, not in her heart, but in his heart. Just in that little, that little pronoun, there's a confrontational message. In other words, Jesus is saying, all people are made in the image of God. All people have the same responsibilities before God. And all, tree, all people must act with love toward those around them. So men don't get exempted from this command. I mean, people who look like Jesus are to be loving, sacrificial kind of servants, not brutes who take what they want. Jesus, again, focuses on the heart of the sin. I mean, up to this time, part of the reason that the issue was this way is they didn't see adultery so much as an issue of the heart, so much as an issue of theft. So if you're working your way through the Ten Commandments, you've got the sixth and seventh, which we have here, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You also have don't steal and don't covet. Well, up to this time, they had interpreted the the command not to commit adultery through the lens of not stealing. So in other words, the problem with adultery wasn't that a man committed it. It was that if you took someone else's wife, that was the only way a man could break this if he sinned against another man. But Jesus actually links this commandment to a different of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. 
In other words, to look and desire to take is wrong. And the language even goes a little bit further than that. There's this idea of looking sinfully, but in addition to that, there's this implication that there's a desire to draw the woman into his sin. In other words, first the man objectifies the woman, desires her wrongly, and then secondly, he desires or kind of lures her, her into the sin. Now, we know this isn't just uh, an exclusively male sin because in Proverbs chapter 7, we read about a woman who draws men in this way. And the idea is it's, it's someone partnering in this, in this kind of sin. So if these are God's intentions, how is it that we should respond to what God has said? So up to this point, we've kind of tried to get an idea of what the passage teaches. Now, we're trying, now what we're going to try to do now is take what God intends and, and connect it to our lives today. And the first thing is that we should respond with a radical commitment to reconciliation. A radical commitment to reconciliation. Well, as we look back at verses 23, 24, 25, 26, what you see there is that Jesus gives two examples. We referenced this already. The first is someone coming to worship. The second is a lawsuit. But what we didn't reference is that these actually are two very different situations. In coming to worship, it's a brother, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, or some kind of, say, a neighborly, friendly sort of relationship. But in the other, the, the problem in this lawsuit is an accuser, an adversary, an enemy, And in both cases, whether it's a friend or whether it's an enemy, Jesus says we must pursue reconciliation. And the clear teaching in verses 21 and 22 is not only should we deal with our anger, but we should also live in such a way that allows other people to deal with their anger, to resolve their anger. In other words, not only should we not be the kind of people who are quick to get angry, we should also be the kind of people who help other people diffuse or dissolve their anger. The point is that we're always eager to be living in peace with the people around us. Remember, this is one of the Beatitudes. We are not only peacekeepers, we are what? Peacemakers, people who go where there is conflict and make peace there. It's a radical commitment to reconciliation. We commit to reconciliation when we are experiencing hard feelings towards someone, And we commit to reconciliation when we are provoking those kind of feelings in other people. Either way, the weight is on us. Okay, so let's take this from idea and and, and, and put it here. Let's let the rubber meet the road. Put it where we live. The truth is that there are husbands here who live every day in a world, creating a world where they make this difficult for their family. They interact in a way where there is a universe and they are the center of it and their wife and kids revolve around them. And they make it difficult for them to live at peace unless they get in line with everything. And Jesus says here, you must be fathers, husbands. We must be the kind of people that pursue the peace of our home. Or there are wives that peck, 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 peck at their husband to the point where, as Proverbs says it, they go and live in the corner of the rooftop. Because that's a lot easier than living down below with mama. And, And God says that not ought to be. We ought to be the kind of people that pursue peace in our relationships. Or as kids get older they begin to kind of, whether they're feeling their own wisdom or their own pride of life, they begin to realize and maybe even resent the authority of mom and dad. And as they begin to resent that authority, there's a growing conflict between growing children and parents. And yet, young people, God says that we must be committed to reconciliation, even if it's with rules and things we don't understand. But this this kind of reconciliation isn't just for the home, is it? It's for the church, too. 
In other words, the church ought to be a place where people are radically committed to peaceful reconciliation with one another. We pray every week for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But another thing that Paul teaches there is that this requires, in Ephesians chapter 4, it requires great effort. It required effort for that church in Ephesus in the first century, and it requires great effort for us today. The problem with coming to a church full of sinners is you come to a church full of sinners. And the fact is that when people are sinners, they sin against each other. And you don't have to be married for very long before you realize that. You don't have to have kids very long before you realize that. You don't have to be in a church very long before you realize that. I mean, for me this week, for my little cute two-year-old son, it was him grabbing and ripping down some curtains in our living room. And I'm like, ah, how could you do that? We've told you, don't grab the curtains. And there they are. And I spent a good deal of my weekend repairing multiple times this hole that was created in the wall. And what did this prove to me? It proved to me that I have a sinful heart. Because it's just dumb. It's curtains. It's, it really is. It's curtains. But it's curtains in that moment. But what it does, it reveals to me that my heart is sinful. And in other ways, this comes out in our relationships with each other. But brothers and sisters, we must be radically committed to reconciliation. So the way to this passage is pretty clear. But there are moments in life that aren't cut and dry. What if you are in, presently, or have been in an abusive relationship? What do you do then to establish peace? Well, in abusive relationships, we can always ask God to give us a tender heart that is willing to forgive. But we should never place ourselves or someone we love in danger. In other words, not only is God committed to peaceful reconciliation, he is also the protector of the vulnerable. Over and over, scripture tells us he's the protector of widow. He's the protector of the fatherless. So reconciliation doesn't mean setting aside wisdom and placing ourselves or those we love in danger. Or what if the sin isn't equal? I mean, let's, let's say it this way. Let's say that whatever, what I'm, whatever I'm saying right now is really rubbing you the wrong way. And you're just boiling, and after the service, you come and you pop me right in the stomach, and, and you let me have it. And I'm like, what was that for? And then someone comes alongside me and, and you know, kind of confronts me about my problem with anger. And I'm like, well, did you see what he did? Well, in this moment, maybe what's coming out of my heart is sinful anger, or maybe it's a response to something that was unjust. And so the point is that sometimes we're in a situation where there's conflict, and it's not always, it's not always 50-50. Sometimes it's 99-1, or 98-2, or 60-40, or something like that. And so what do we do in a situation like that? Well, we don't, I haven't had yet, anyone physically assault me after a service, but sometimes we verbally assault each other, don't we? And sometimes we do it behind one another's back. So what if someone gossips or tears someone down? When you hear about this, it's about you or it's about someone you love, and you begin to struggle with resentment toward that person. And so it's clear that there's one person initiating the sin. What do you do? Well, first, don't respond in the same way. In other words, what does gossip tend to produce? More gossip. I mean, what does a punch tend to produce? A punch back, because we're not meek, humble people. So don't respond in the same way. Secondly, remember our commitment to peacemaking. We are to be peacemakers, but thirdly, remember what Jesus said. Turn the other cheek. Remember your Savior who was lied about, spit on, abused, ultimately killed for sins he never committed, tortured for something he didn't do, and let the mercy and grace of God that we see in the life of our Savior move us to mercy and grace toward other people that are hard to love. Well, what if you pursue reconciliation and the person won't won't forgive? 
Or what if the person just doesn't get it or it's an impossible situation? Well, God's word helps us here too. Because sometimes there are situations that are beyond us, humanly speaking. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, so much as lies with you, pursue peace with all men. In other words, sometimes we do all we can and there's still no solution, humanly speaking. And in that moment, we pray. We pray for God to intervene, for God to make things clear, for God to resolve things that we couldn't otherwise resolve. And then we trust. We trust that at the end of all things, God is going to make it all right. God is going to resolve the unresolvable. There's going to be no more crying, no more tears, no more conflict, only peace and harmony in relationships. And we look forward to that day. So there's this radical commitment to reconciliation. But secondly, there's radical amputation of sin. And that's the literal instruction here. Look again at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I mean, this is violent language. Or verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Don't only cut it off, throw it away where you can never find it, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is remarkably strong language. Now, I don't think Jesus is encouraging us to literally go out and begin amputating limbs. There was a, an early church father, a well-known preacher by the name of Origen. It's like the word origin, except it's origen with an E-N, origen. And he read this, he was struggling with lust, and so he castrated himself. Now, I'm not recommending or commending that as a response to this passage to anyone here. However, Jesus' point is, isn't so much that we begin hacking off limbs. It's that we aim, he aims toward our hearts and saying that we should do whatever it takes to fight the power of sin in our lives. In other words, why does a surgeon amputate a limb? You amputate a limb to save a life. And Jesus' point here is you amputate, you cut off your access to sin to save your soul. It's better to lose one body part than to lose your whole body in hell. It's also why churches sometimes have to practice church discipline. Because fighting sin is such an important part of our life individually and also of the church as a whole. It's terrible to lose a limb, and anyone who has lost a limb can tell you this. But the worst possible outcome of any situation for any of us is that we are eternally condemned for our sin. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. That's what's at stake here. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Ultimately, the problem is that none of us can deal with our sin problem. Sin is any breaking of God's law or any falling short of God's expectations. And ultimately, there's not a single person here who can do that. There's not a single person here who hasn't broken God's intention to become sinfully angry with a brother or sister. We all at some level fall short of God's expectations for our sexual or mental purity. There's not a person here who hasn't called someone or been tempted to call someone an idiot. We might avoid adultery, the act of adultery, or we might not. We might not murder, or we might, but the solution is, is, is the same for us in either case. If you are here this morning and you have physically murdered someone, or you are here and you, have some, you are someone who has despised someone in your heart, if you are here and you are someone who has physically, literally committed the act of adultery, or you are someone who has lusted or desired sinfully in your heart, either way, the solution is the same. The sin is against the same holy God, and the solution is the same. And the solution is that Jesus deals with our sin at the cross. In other words, you can be the most vile murderer in the history of the world, and God will save you if you come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. 
It could be the most vile adulterer, philanderer, womanizer. And if you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he will save you. Or you could be the most outwardly holy, righteous person and yet have a wicked heart and God will save you. Or you can be the kind of person who just struggles with this burden of guilt and the solution is the same. No matter whether you have committed the worst sin or imagined the worst sin, the solution for all of us is the same. It's to turn from our sin, to turn from our acts of sin, to turn from our hearts of sin and ask God to save us through Jesus and Jesus alone. So if you're here this morning and you know God by faith in Christ, thank God that he rescues you through Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, my pleading with you is that you would turn from your sin and trust Jesus and ask him to rescue you. Sinful sexual desire is something that everyone struggles with, but no one likes to talk about. It's just, it's awkward to talk about it. Uh, A few years ago, not that long ago, uh, the University of Montreal was doing a study. They were uh, doing a study on the effects of pornography in the lives of, of men, particularly men in their 20s. And so they created two groups. One was uh, the study group, and the other was a comparison group. And the study group were people who admitted uh, that they were using pornography, and the other group was people who didn't. But they had to cancel the study because they couldn't find the second group. They statistically could not find a single man in his 20s who didn't admit the use of pornography at some level. And we often think about this in relation to men, but it's not a male-only problem. Recent studies show us that one-third of women pursue pornography every week, and that 54% of women under the age of 25 regularly seek out pornography. I mean, to say that this is an epidemic is an understatement. It used to take some effort to pursue this kind of sin, but today walks around with us and lives with us. So if you find yourself in this kind of situation, what should you do? The first thing is just to confess your sin. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it in ways that it's worked its way out in relationship with other people. Confess it to appropriate people. Secondly, get some help. Typically, this isn't something that you can fight on your own. Sin thrives in the dark and kind of wilts in the light. Find a trusted Christian who can at some level provide you counsel and help and accountability. Thirdly, amputate your access. Cut off your access. If it's another person that you're tempted with or sinning with, be extreme in amputating your access to that person. It is better to lose your job than to lose your soul. And if it's pornography, lock down your devices. In our home, we keep accountability software on our computers, on our phones, on our tablets. Frankly, I would commend the same practice to you. And parents, know what is going on on your kid's phone. It's not a matter of if, it is when. You wouldn't let your two-year-old walk around with a loaded gun You shouldn't let your 14-year-old walk around with a loaded phone. It can kill their soul. Fourthly, commit yourself to the word and prayer. Use verses like Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Or Job 31, 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look sinfully at a young woman. Fight with the sword of the Spirit and pray that God will make these things a reality in your life. Fifthly and finally, remember the gospel. One error we make with sin is that we might take it too lightly, but sometimes we make an equal and opposite error, and that's forgetting the grace of God in the gospel. Satan can use guilt-free denial, like that's not a problem, or he can use guilt-induced burden, either way, to rob us of our relationship with Christ. Remember verses like Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, 
at some level, we all sit here this morning condemned under the law of God, but one thing that is equal, and that is the grace that God offers through Jesus Christ. You could be the most outwardly holy or the most outwardly unholy person. If you come to God through Christ, he washes you clean with the blood of Christ. And as Psalm 103 puts it, he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't matter how much you look for it. You cannot find the sins that you've committed if they are hidden under the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if God justifies us, there's not a human being who can condemn us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only did Jesus die for your sin, he stands before the throne of God today pleading your case, saying, God, my blood is sufficient for this one. My grace is sufficient for this sin. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things I am persuaded that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And brother or sister, if you are here and wrestling with the consequences of your sin, run to that good news. There is nothing that you have done and nothing that anyone else can do to you that can separate you from what God has done for you in Christ. The struggle is real, but God's grace is sufficient. And the joy and freedom we find in Christ are worth it. So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God there in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now. God, I thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. There's nothing else that can wash away sin. There's nothing else we need. And so, God, I pray that you will encourage us today with the sufficient grace that we find in Christ. And I pray for those here uh, who are struggling with the burden of sin. God, I pray that you would give them hope. And for those here who don't know you through faith in Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would trust you and see that you are their only hope. God, thanks for taking sinners and making us righteous. We don't deserve this and we can't earn it. But God, we thank you have done this, that you have done this by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to give us all an opportunity to respond uh, tangibly to the word. And I'll say this. I know that on a day like today, you know, no one really wants to be flooding the aisle. No one wants to, you know, come and say, hey, it's me, it's me. But if you, if God has been working in your heart, Uh, It would be our delight to help you. It would be my delight to make myself available to you, uh, both now but also later. So feel free to reach out if if there is uh, some way we can help. There are other folks here, frankly, who would would love to help as well. If the Lord is calling you to 
uh, pursue your discipleship here as a part of this church and committed membership, we would love to talk with you about that. The Lord's calling you to follow him in baptism. We'd love to talk with you uh, about that as well. Would you stand, please? We'll sing together of God's grace to sinners like us. Amazing grace.